Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. Today, Nick and Ann are speaking with Sturgis Carbon, CEO of Manifest 7, California's first and leading omni-channel cannabis distribution company, supporting the legal movement of products across the state and beyond. Focused on streamlining the distribution of cannabis across the world's most competitive marketplace, M7 has developed a unified platform that supports compliant distribution, retail, and delivery operations for both enterprise and consumers. Our hosts wanted to speak with Sturgis to get an update on the growing California marketplace and to get a better understanding of what is working in the state and where there might still be shortcomings. We also discussed Manifest 7's business model and how it's focused on distribution and technology in addition to a couple of new key partnerships that are setting the company up to be a long-term player in California and eventually other regulated markets. Sturgis also provides his thoughts on the legislative process cannabis has seen on the federal level and offers his expectations on what to expect in the coming months and years. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our conversation with Sturgis Carbon of Manifest 7. We are talking today with Sturgis Carbon, the CEO of Manifest 7, which is California's first and leading omni-channel cannabis distribution company. So Sturgis, we're so happy to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your cannabis story? Sure. Um, so I'm a uh, 20-year recovering investment banker uh, <laughs> with, uh, with um, you know experience primarily focused on emerging markets and alternative asset classes. So when this industry came knocking. It was a while ago, uh, seven years ago, actually, which is like geological time in this industry. Oh, my God. And uh, yeah, it was right after Colorado went recreational. Um, and you had this kind of huge mainstreaming effect. But um, at the time, I was running uh, a boutique merchant bank based out of uh, L.A., uh, London and New York. Um, that was also all, all alternatives focused. So we were doing stuff in you know energy infrastructure mining and natural resources, uh, technology, life sciences. And then this, this popped up. And interestingly enough, I started my career at Robertson Stevens, which 20 years ago was one of the premier investment banks for technology during the top dot-com era. So when I got into the space and as it evolved, you know, from 2014, more into like 16, 17, and you started to see what was happening up North in Canada on the CSE, kind of the public venture finance market, the type of multiples that were being paid, the general aspirational frothiness of this you know, brand new market, it looked very familiar to me in terms of where I had started in technology. And you know those curves in terms of the evolution of the space, whether you're looking at the market or just the traction commercially, globally, you know this, this industry has kind of tracked that to a large extent. Um, so that's kind of what attracted me at first was I, I started my career at the very end of that bubble and, you know, got into other things before you saw the inflection point and kind of the 2.0 with social media. And I saw that same trajectory opportunity here with cannabis very early on. And, you know, I think we're still actually very far away from where kind of the true expression of the, the multiple value of this is globally. So there's a lot of runway left ahead of us too. It's an interesting conversation to compare, um, 
you know, the emerging cannabis industry with like the tech bubble, um, you know, in the, in the way that there has always been a market for cannabis, legal or illegal, the bubble, the, or tech, the technology web, you know, all of that stuff was, was brand new to people. So like you almost are, have, have a safety net of like, we know there already is a market for this. It's just a matter of how we are going to legalize it. Um, you know, make revenue and, uh, you know, make it, yeah. make it a commodity or make it, make it something that's a, con- a consumer good. Um, so I think that's an interesting comparison, but I almost like, you know, cannabis's future is better at this point than the tech bubble was at this point. I don't know. Is that, yeah, is that it's, too no, I know Pollyanna? No, no, no. no. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's actually a very astute observation. And it's, it's one that gets, it's a nuance that gets overlooked. You know, it, it's not a new more. I, I, even I did it just five minutes ago. You know, it's, it's actually not a new market. It's, it's a, it's an existing black market that's been around for decades. You can quantify it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is really just the cannibalization or the migration of that into a regulated market. And that, that is where there is a difference in some of the benchmarks that people use tech included, right? That was just very opaque because it was absolutely brand new. Here, what's opaque and uncertain and evolving is, you know, transition as opposed to ground up. Right. And, you know, but that's but that's that gives you you're right, I think, to some extent, an advantage in being able to understand how it will evolve. You know, you've reduced the number of variables basically to regulatory adoption. That's that's really it. And enforcement. So it's, you know, and when you look at the size of the market, it's funny. I mean, you, you see a lot of kind of ground up analysis, but not a lot of approaches that actually look at, well, what is the installed? There's an installed customer base in the black market, right? It's there and it's all over. Um, but, you know, what's missing from that and what are the, you know, what are the virtues of the regulated market? I mean, it's tons of them, right? I mean, we're not innovating products in the black market, right? They're not, they're not looking for biopharmacological right. <laughs> solutions, right? They're so, and, and it's dangerous. So, um, so yeah, I think that's one of the kind of interesting components of this is when you really get, you know, into the detail, there is a market that exists. There is a supply chain that exists. The, the task at hand is converting those, you know, into regulated versions of themselves effectively. Well, let's talk about that market and what Manifest 7 does to, you know, compete in that and then serve the customers of it. So can you give us some background on the genesis of Manifest 7 and where you guys are today serving the California market? Sure. Yeah. So we we, we are a California company. We're based in Orange County. Um, we've been here from the very beginning when we founded the company under a different name, actually, in 2014. And in, in kind of opening this, I didn't mention that when we started um, given the background of the principles, myself included, we actually started as a venture fund. We were one of California's first kind of formal investors in the space. And so we made about 15 minority equity investments across a couple of different categories, pretty much from 2014 to 16. Um, as we saw you know, the market evolve, whether it was what was happening in Canada and the public marketplace, the industry on the ground in California, the rest of the country, Prop 64 here in this state in particular, the bellwether effect, you know, the validation effect of California going legal, all that was kind of in front of us when we made the transition from investing to operating. And when we did that, we made that pivot in early 17. I took over as CEO. I'd been an investor in a company and on the board. Um, and I really came in to reposition the business from an investor and into an operator. 
And really what we did in, in, you know, evaluating our approach to that was leverage really at that point, pretty significant domain expertise comparatively. We've been in for a while. We, you know, evaluated hundreds of companies. We understood by virtue of that where there were going to be systemic challenges. Uh, and so we kind of looked at the supply chain as a blank canvas and we ruled out um, cultivation pretty quickly. We saw the commodity price exposure to that. Um, that's you know going to be a consolidated vertical. It, it already is getting there pretty quickly. Um, and when you put that in the context of a evolving global market, you know at, at some point very soon you're not going to need you know hundreds of thousands of square feet of grow facility in Oklahoma. It's going to be epicenters like California feeding a whole supply chain. So we worked our way down you know kind of the supply chain and landed on distribution. And what M7 focuses on primarily is full service distribution in California integrated with an omni-channel retail platform. That is everything from dispensary, in-store pickup, local on-demand delivery, e-commerce subscription. So we're, we're building an integrated B2B and B2C um, ecosystem essentially. And you know the decision to do that was really kind of um, in contravention of the quote unquote prevailing wisdom at the time, which is you should theoretically, if you're gonna expand outside of one state into another, you should do everything and vertically integrate. You should grow it, you should extract, you should manufacture, have your own brands, have your own retail, self-distribute. You know, we liked the idea of a disciplined, defined core competence that could provide a universal value proposition to every stakeholder in the supply chain from cultivator to retailer and all the way to the end user. And so that's what we've been building in a way that's slightly different than a number of companies that are just looking to scale, you know, literally by controlling an end-to-end throughput. Our, our focus is specialized and creating solutions for operators across the board and normalizing the retail experience for the end user. I think that's a really interesting point you make about the MSOs that are vertically integrated for all these new states that they enter, that you know, once federal legalization happens, I think you're absolutely right. The, these uh, cultivation hubs in California or even outside of the United States, once they do have the ability to import into the U.S., are going to be much more viable options, I think, than, you know, opening yeah. up a, a, an indoor grow facility in Massachusetts or upstate New York. It's just those aren't ideal conditions to, to grow. Yeah. <laughs> no. and, and, you know, it's interesting because when you look at like we were talking about technology, right, and it's it's more when you're in an early stage of a, an industry, whatever it is, right, you're, you're building your enterprise on a grid that that shifts. It's fluid. Right. And so, you know, in this case, it's kind of like, well, people have made a bet on these models and you have to because you have to operate. Right. You've got to commit, commit to something. But, you know, it's, it's really the underlying analysis that matters. Like if you're if you're building a vertically integrated model and you're going from state to state, that works now because you have interstate barriers that that make it you know rational. When you remove those barriers, it becomes less rational and you have a lot of redundant infrastructure. So it it fundamentally. In a, in a really um, kind of reductive way, comes down to what bets are you making in terms of how this evolves. It's kind of like if, if you go back to technology, very early in the you know um, the advent of the internet, there was the the DSL, the cable, the fiber you know debate. How is how is data going to get delivered? That infrastructure wasn't there, and operators still made you know strategic decisions based on what they thought was going to win. Go back thirty years earlier, Betamax or VHX. You still have fundamental decision points like that in a space like this, you know, metaphorically, that that you have to confront where you you have a lot of opacity as to what is going to happen. And you have to make some informed decisions around what what to do in anticipation of that. 
our decision was it's inevitable. It may be longer than people think, but it's inevitable that you're going to have interstate commerce. Therefore, I'm not going to spend 10 or $20 million of my investors' money building a growth facility in South Dakota that I know I'm not going to need in two to five years. And, and so that's just a different strategic worldview, frankly. The, the technology that you've built, um, I mean, the, the whole point is scalability, right? To your point of, you know, once the the um, interstate commerce is allowed or legalization, whatever, whatever order it comes in, right? Um, how quickly are you able to then go to the Colorados, the Oregon's, the Washington's of the world um, and yeah. start to scale? Like, are, are, is it like the next day or is it like, you know... It, is it going to be very specific based on whatever those those state regulations are? Because I'm assuming they're still going to have some kind of play. Right. So that that's a that's a really interesting key point. And, and again, this is like an, a, an under the surface um, nuance again. So a couple of things. One, um, your ground game actually is at the local level. Right. So whether, whether it's commercial and location, location, location or it's regulatory. You know, you in California, for example, you apply for a permit in the city that you're operating in before you get your state license. The, the point of that is if if you are thinking about what are the implications after federal legalization, everyone focuses on the interstate relationship, you know, Nevada to California, California to Massachusetts. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day, because where I am adjudicated commercially and on a regulatory basis that matters is not in California, it's in San Francisco or Brisbane or Long Beach. And if you think about it, you know, just comparatively, if I live in Boston, um, where I used to 15 years ago, you know, you had a uh, bars close at one o'clock in the morning. If you went down the street to uh, Waltham, you know, 10 miles away, you could drink until 1.30. What's at issue there? Community standards. Community standards are still gonna drive all of this. Everything that happens above that at the state or the federal level, it's just the Russian doll that encapsulates it, right? And so that's critical and to some extent agnostic to what happens with federal legalization. In terms of our rollout and, and how, it, how it will happen um, from a federal level, I, I've made the contention for a while now that you know legalization has been talked about like it happens with a magic wand, right? We're talking about the United <laughs> States federal government. Look at <laughs> look at what happened in California and extrapolate from there how long this is going to take. All the stakeholders, the politics, all of it. It's half of the battle is getting it through Congress into the resolute desk. After that is where it really is going to be interesting to see how it gets implemented and adopted. And so for us, we've been strategically patient for that with that. And we believe one of the reasons, for example, we stayed in California and focused here, most people think it's because it's the biggest market in the world, and that's certainly part of it. The other is because it's probably the most fragmented and commercially challenging. And so if you're anticipating federal legalization and moving to other states, this is like Kenyan marathon training. You know, you're <laughs> out so if you come down to Nevada or you know some of the other states that have legalized, it's a much quicker adaptation of the model. We're stress testing it in the crucible of California. We're expecting it to be a lot more difficult to actually get to federal legalization in terms of an implementation, but we'll have built out a proof of concept where we know how to navigate that and we can protect our shareholder capital doing it. So it's kind of the convergence of all of those things. It's going to be a lot more complicated than people think. 
And that's why we started in the most dysfunctional state first and decided to <laughs> roll like out. It's like three there. or four different states, right? I live in LA <laughs> yeah. and it's just, I'm, I'm a New Jersey transplant. And, and this state is just like, literally like no other state I've ever been in. <laughs> no, I say that all the time. Like, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, demographic fragmentation, just talk to someone in San Francisco and ask them what they think of people in LA and you'll realize you got oh, yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, it's, it's, that's all at work here. It's yeah. it actually, it's commercially meaningful. I mean, there's a distribution failure there. If I'm, I live in LA too. If I go up to San Francisco and I, you know, walk into a dispensary, I'm probably going to recognize maybe about half of the products under the glass. You know, that is a function of exactly the problem that we're trying to solve inside of the state and then eventually in others. Yeah. So, so, you know, what have you guys been doing so far to kind of solve that? Cause I've, I've read through some of your past interviews and stuff where you talk about this cannabis super highway and connecting, you know, the, the Southern California market with, with the Northern California market. How does that, how do you guys make that work? So the, the first step for us was what I call the pins in the map strategy, which is licensed. Just, and again, this to use the analogy, we were, you know, kind of engaging earlier you know, it's like laying the fiber optic for the internet. So, you know, the first thing you need to do is actually infrastructure the state. So licensed distribution centers in the major markets, you know, through a logistical pattern that's rational, connect those and you add kind of your commercial long haul backbone network. And then you focus on, um, you know, kind of the, the, the retail last mile from the facility to the dispensary. Where, where we've kind of looked at that, and this is where we combine B2C and B2B. So our distribution business is really that. It's the, the long haul into the last mile, right, to the retailer. The question then becomes, well, in, in traditional forms of commerce that people are used to or habituated to, like making an order on Amazon, how does the product get from the last way station through the consumer last mile to the end user's front door? And here, it's not like, you know, you can set up a cannabis e-commerce business and just chuck boxes in a bin for UPS to pick up at the end of the day. You actually have to have a captive fulfillment platform for yourself. So what we've done is we started, this is what I was talking about in terms of integrating and starting with distribution and then bringing in retail. We started with distribution by building that long haul backbone first. And then we started to look at retail on-demand delivery to pick up from the retailer shelves where our distribution business ends and go to the living room of the end user, the actual customer. And if you fuse those, you've now built an end-to-end platform where you literally have a frictionless throughput all the way to the end user. And that's, that's kind of the overall strategy. That's how we're traversing the fragmentation from a geographic and a regulatory perspective in California. We're fusing B2B infrastructure with retail fulfillment effectively, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And I'm very interested in what you're talking about with that last mile um, within the distribution. I think that's so important and sometimes can get, get overlooked, especially when we were going through the, the pandemic this last year where there's so many different delivery type rules and stuff. I think it's, it's very interesting that you guys are, are focused on that. Um, so if I'm a customer trying to order from you guys, you guys have a really unique kind of branding within that, that last mile for the B2C customer. Can you talk about that and, uh, the phone number that, the that consumers can <laughs> yeah. call? I'm What's, trying your to What's your number? I'm trying, I'm trying to remember the phone number. <laughs> you mean 1-800-CANNABIS. That's, that's the, the one. one. <laughs> that's the one. Yes. And that's, that actually, it's probably, thanks for that. It's, it's a good, 
it's kind of a good keystone that ties all of that together, right? So the, the idea is a singular gateway to the landscape I just described, to a full service, you know, B2B distribution platform for the operators and a, a true omni-channel um, retail ecosystem for the end user. The idea is to have a singular apex point across all media. And right now we have call center text and web. We'll soon have, an, have a native app, but that is our gateway. That's like our Amazon.com, basically. Mm -hmm. I love it. I can't wait to call Wayne 800 Cannabis here in Arizona. <laughs> That's actually probably not that far away. You know, we're going to uh -huh. stay regionally as we move across California. It'll be it'll be in the neighborhood. And that's one of the great things about the phone number, too. Theoretically, we can Trojan horse the number in without the infrastructure for third party operators, really start to build a presence in the market, some brand equity. And then you bring the owned and operated infrastructure in behind it. So there's there's ways of doing this that kind of clear the thicket ahead of us in certain ways, um, commercially speaking. So, um, you know, COVID had an effect on literally everybody, um, and especially the cannabis industry where, um, you know, it was deemed an essential service, um, you know, which was great for the industry, um, you know, but it meant a lot of stress on the system, right? Yeah. Um, there were changing consumer habits. Uh, people were stockpiling. People were, you know, maybe coming back to cannabis when they hadn't been before, uh, maybe trying new things that they hadn't tried before. How were you able to keep up um, with that demand changing so quickly? Yeah. So this is where having uh, on-demand delivery businesses really helped. Um, and there's no question, actually, it was interesting. You, you can graph the behavior. Um, when the shelter and order place came down, um, we had such a huge spike in our physical store, uh, the actual storefront. And so people were out going and grabbing and stockpiling cannabis along with Purell and toilet paper during that period of time. And, yeah. and then, and then we had literally, it was just as, it was just as kind of critical almost or, or well-timed, I mean, predictable, you know, as soon as you started to see the essential services and the shelter in place kind of orders settle in, the store revenue started to come down and you saw a huge spike in the delivery. Like it, it was predictable. Um, and, you know, but what's interesting about that period, because we did great, actually, we shaved a lot of costs during that period of time. We ticked up revenue significantly quarter, quarter to quarter, where I think a lot of operators got hit is remember that you're in an early stage industry where there's very limited financing options and where most of the operators are not self-funding. So you were caught in this cognitive dissonance moment where your business was doing great. <laughs> but if you were relying on capital, pretty much every door shut on you. And the only thing you had available as a financing source for the most part was debt, if you were lucky enough to get it. So it was it was a weird, um, or I guess an understandable, but, but kind of strange, you know, schizophrenia where the commercial businesses were on fire, but what they needed from the capital markets to stay that way was really difficult to get. And so I think that's probably the, the lesson of last year. There are two. One is demand for the product is not going anywhere. It's recession-proof. It's non-correlated. Everybody understands that now, which, by the way, the sim businesses have you know, a history of, of that happening. In moments of crisis, 9-11, alcohol and cigarette sales spiked, right? Same thing here. So all of that's understandable. I think the lessons are demand isn't going away, and number two, the operators need to find ways to profitability. 
you know, and, and be sustainable. Everybody learned that the hard way last year. And remember, we were already coming out of an industry-wide shakeout based in large part on that coming into COVID, you know, in the early part of last year. So it was, it was kind of a dual lesson, one on the operating side and one on the capital market side. You mentioned um, the the physical store locations and them doing you know really well in the initial um, shelter in place order. Um, can you talk a little bit about those those physical storefronts and how they fit into your business model? Yeah, so the idea behind um, the the retail of you know in in the overall strategy, on demand delivery is the tip of the spear. That's that's really where we're focused. We we believe that's you know not just in this product category, but like in every widgetized product category, whether it's your ride sharing or your pizza or your beer or your groceries, everything is on demand now. Um, and that's only going to become more the case as we see kind of the millennial generation mature and, and you know, the generations behind them. So there's just an, an industry agnostic thinking around that to some extent. And then it just happens to be particularly relevant within this, the cannabis product category. Retail, um, you know, storefront retail is kind of interesting because it's this all comes down, as it often does in cannabis, to licensing. So in certain markets in California, if you want to have an on-demand delivery depot, you, you can typically apply for what's called a non-storefront delivery license. I just need a, a small kind of distribution center. I'm not transacting business. Customers cannot come into the, the facility and buy the product. You can only deliver out of it. In other markets, and a couple of the big ones like San Diego, you actually need to have the storefront and deliver from the storefront. So getting into the retail concept really was in the service of, of building out the delivery platform where we needed it. What we found, though, is once you're in like storefront retail and delivery, then you're in all channels of retail and you might as well control them. And if you're already at a point where you have our distribution business, that's the long haul model I was talking about, you know, Connecting the omni-channel side to it makes a lot of sense because that's what enables, for example, e-commerce in the way that people have become accustomed to it, you know, ordering on Amazon or Warby Parker or whatever. So <clears throat> that's kind of, I think, our, our philosophical underpinning is the tip of the spear is local on-demand delivery, multi-locationally. You want short radiuses for quick coverage and customer service and ultimately customer retention to enable that it makes sense to have a select portfolio of brick and mortar storefronts that support that delivery and that ultimately bolt on chunkier revenue and kind of act almost as mini distribution centers for a captive retail business in of itself. So we are not, we do not aspire to be, you know, med men. It, we're not looking for 30 stores in California. We're really tactically picking those in the service of a much broader omnichannel retail strategy. I definitely want to come back to talking about MSOs and LPs and, you know, how you guys compare to them. But I want to first stick on on this topic of distribution and and see if you can tell us more about uh, the Highlanders program that that M7 uh, has within it. And then also you guys have some recent partnerships with Eel River and Better Than Good. Can you talk about um, those deals and what they mean for your business? Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll start from the beginning with that. So the the. The distribution landscape in California is really interesting right now. And, you know, to use a, a mining metaphor, there have been a lot of operators that have broken their pick in the state trying to make it work. Um, and, you know, it's it's everything that we talked about earlier. It's, you know, there's a lot of commercial friction given the regulatory fragmentation, the regulatory burden, tax burden, all of that. Um, 
but it is probably the most key vertical in the space, right? Without it, nothing happens. And I, it's kind of staggering to me that nobody's noticed that. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the, the context that we're in right now in California is absolutely fascinating. The whole state is consolidating. It's been because it's like the biggest Rubik's Cube in the space. It's been the one that even the bigger MSOs haven't, even, haven't gotten into. So if you can really build out a presence here, whatever your aspirations are going national, going global and your time horizon, if you can control California and, and the supply and the commerce in California, that is a queen on the chessboard, right? Just in where we are now, then think about what it looks like when it goes global, right? And the Emerald Triangle is, you know, supplying a global supply chain. So, so it's a key part for us. And, it, and the moment that we're in right now is the contraction of the number of operators that are there. And what we've built out is pretty differentiated. Most of what distribution is focused on in California, it's been looked at as more like a necessary evil. And, you know, that really comes down to the fact that if you're a grower in California and you also own an extraction facility and your extraction facility is 20 feet away across the street in another building from your grow, you need to hire me as a licensed distributor to move it from, from literally one side of the street to the other. So, you know, when you think about that, right, that that's a race to the bottom in terms of a service provision. You know, if you're just doing logistics, logistics and transport, the only differentiating factor between players is who's cheaper. So it's a very commodified business, you know, high volume, low margin. What we've built out is a full service model. So we do, we really are looking to build a solution set that's broadly B2B, not just distribution in the way that cannabis operators understand it. That looks a lot more like traditional distribution where you're, you're moving the needle on the economics of your client. And so that, you know, is a wide spectrum of things that we're infilling. It's not just logistics and transport moving the product, it's commodity brokerage facilitating scale trades of commodities between, you know, a buyer and a seller, whether it's a grower and extractor, an extractor and manufacturer, um, you know, bulk wholesale, where we do that with inventory risk, wholesale to retail, we represent a portfolio of brands, we sell them into roughly about half of the licensed dispensaries around the state. And then a subset of light manufacturing services that are also highly regulated, that have kind of been orphaned, but really make a lot of sense to, you know, merge into the distribution pathway. So things like packing, co-packing, bottling, labeling, infusing, take the sum total of that plus a dedicated sales force. And that's a full service model that really offers solutions beyond just, I can legally get your product from one end of the state to the other. So that's, that's what we're focused on at Highlanders. And, you know, the, <clears throat> the clients that were announced um, Eel River and, and Better Than Good. Um, and Eel River is a great example of that. We're doing everything for them. Um, and, you know, they, and across a wide variety of products in their portfolio. Um, Better Than Good, you know, Cream of the Crop last year was the, the fastest growing brand in California. Um, you know, and so th there's, there's, I think, validation around the fact that as operators mature and they need to focus more on whatever their core business is, self-distribution or just ignoring it is not is not feasible and at the same time they'll drink the sand if there's no water so we've built a full service you know platform effectively as the oasis in the middle of that desert you mentioned earlier basically that if you can make it in california you can make it anywhere um and uh although i think some new yorkers might have a problem with that but uh, we'll adopt it for for this conversation um are you guys 
you know, waiting for full legalization before your growth expansion to other states, or if like, you know, a, a mature market like like Colorado or Washington, Oregon came to you guys and were like, we we love what you're doing. Is is, is that at that point would you enter that state, or <clears throat> are you truly waiting for, you know? No. Okay. Yeah. No. No. We can we can export the model, you know, into a into another state pretty easily. I think for Maybe us, that it's you're more excited fun. about. <laughs> yeah, we got a couple. We, okay. we're, but it might be a little bit early to. Okay. But look, I think um, I think that for us, the, the the legalization is not really the issue. It's it's really um, it's really making decisions based on what's right for the enterprise. We want to have a full footprint in California, and we're very close to doing that. So that's got to come first. I, I, we need to deliver on that that mandate. Um, and so it's not, it's not really tied to, um, to anything regulatory. It's, I think if we're looking at anything sooner than kind of what's in the standard plan, um, which is more of a strategically patient approach, it would be because there is something opportunistic there. So there's a, there's a massive client opportunity in another state that we know we can move into cost effectively. There's, you know, an M&A transaction where we could lift and shift, an entire infrastructure turnkey, something like that. And by the way, it's a target-rich environment out there. A lot of those things, you know, pop up, and we do evaluate them. But I think our our philosophical focus for the last five years has been discipline. And just because it's there doesn't necessarily mean it's the right time to do it for you. And you know, from that perspective, what drives our thought pattern is always the fundamental economics. Is this the right use of investor capital, and is it the right time? And you know, an opportunistic transaction subsumes that in the right way. We're not out hunting yet. You know, I'm not. I'm not shopping for apartments in Nevada, for example. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, this year is going to be interesting uh, with regards to cannabis legislation. Um, any. Any predictions um, or or trends that you want to talk about that that you see happening this year? Uh, we're going to play the you know what what passes Congress this year game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I love that game. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> open that it's crystal fun. ball, Sturgis. Uh, bingo. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, I know. Uh, look, I mean, I think we're all looking at the same tea leaves, right? I mean, we've got just look at the last couple of years. We have legislation that that passed a Democrat House but failed in a Republican Senate. And it would have been questionable what would have happened at a Republican Oval Office, right? Now we have a blue house, a blue Senate, and a blue White House, and they are all very aligned in terms of their legislative agendas. They're, it's very consistent. And most of what's happening you know, in and around, and take cannabis out of it for a minute, all of the kind of affinity or related issues culturally, economically, politically, they're being engaged in everything else that's happening right now, right? So I think it's a pretty safe bet that in the timeline, whatever it was in your head, you know, say six, seven months ago is definitely shorter. You know, where what where we actually pin the tail on the donkey in terms of an actual month and year, I, I don't know. But I think it's safe to say everybody can pretty much feel that the friction has come off of the legislative process and there's probably a tailwind there rather than a headwind. So, you know, I, I, I think it's, is it possible that we see something really significant like the SAFE Act this year? Yeah, I think it's possible. Um, you know, what does that mean for everybody? I don't know if the industry is ready for it. 
I don't know if anyone really <laughs> asked that question, you know? Well, so, why do you say that? I mean, cause everyone is saying we can't wait, we can't wait. But then you think that they're just going to be like, duh, <laughs> like well, when it does I don't that. Know, I, you know, I don't look, I, I don't know how many operators are. If, if you, if you look at this in in kind of the, uh, you know, in a real honest way. Okay. What legalization really means when you, when you reduce it down to its base level is institutional money finally comes into this space. And so do the big strategic balance sheets, like we saw in Canada, right? That's really what that means. The, the rest of it is conversation. And if you're not thinking of it that way, than an operator, then you're going to get eaten alive. Th this period of time that we've had where we can operate in these kind of cottage industries across the States and really develop enterprises, whatever friction, you know, has been on that, it's still been the opportunity to do it in basically a, an entrepreneurially monopolistic environment, right? You're not competing with Amazon. You're not competing with Constellation. They're going to make a huge entry into this market when that, when those barriers lift. So when I say, are you ready? I mean, it's, are you ready to compete or are you ready to sell? Because if you're not, you're done. So there's a gift and a curse in accelerated legalization. That I don't think a lot of people think about. You know, I like the barriers right now. They make me sleep better at night. And I know that I've got some time to build something that they're going to want to buy rather than have to compete with them. So I actually like the extra time. You know, I'm not in a hurry. And I think if most operators were really thinking through it, they wouldn't be either. Sir, so just you have been extremely generous with your time. We have one more question for you that we ask all of our guests uh, when they come on our show. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, we have two questions we ask all of our guests. Yeah, two questions, I guess. Um, but, you know, it, 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 you're, you're in California, so, you know, what, what we always want to know is, what do you think is the most undertold story in cannabis right now? So if it's you're looking at the L.A. Times, the Chronicle, the New York Times, what's that story that you think is not being told that you would love to wake up tomorrow and see on that A1 headline? Mm, that's a good one. I think... Um, I think that there's more institutional money positioning and about to really come into the space. And look, as an operator, like I can only answer that question personally. And where where is the biggest burden been on for me? It's it's raising money. It's really difficult here. You know, there's no Silicon Valley to go to with like a software services model here, right? <laughs> you know, you're really talking about family offices and I know worse. So the institutions coming in, I think that's actually those tectonic plates are shifting now. We're seeing it, you know, even in some news around some of the bigger names that's kind of out there. Uh, that's that's the story I actually want to wake up. I want to hear that Goldman made a hundred million dollar investment in a, in a company. Then I know we're really we're really getting somewhere. That to me is more significant than anything that's going to get passed legislatively. And I think that's actually happening. You know, we've we've been seeing it evolve very gradually. Some of the broker dealers came in, you know. But when you start getting the financial institutions, then it's going to get really fun. So that's that's what I think is coming. I think you're spot on. I remember when I think it was uh, BMO made an investment like of 300 million into Aurora, and that like really jumped the Canadian stocks a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. So I think you're I think you're spot on there. Well, it's been fun. <laughs> this has been great. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Um, again, we have been chatting with Sturgis Carbon, the chief executive officer of Manifest 7. Check them out at Manifest 7, the number seven, uh, on Twitter at Manifest 7 Social, on Instagram at Manifest 7 Social, and always use the number and don't spell it out. <laughs>
Special thanks again to Sturgis Carbon, Chief Executive Officer of Manifest 7. Check them out at manifest7.com. That's manifest the number seven.com. Check them out on Twitter at manifest number seven social and on Instagram, manifest seven social. Uh, and thank you always for listening. If you want to chat with us, find us on Twitter at the underscore green rush on Instagram at the green rush underscore podcast, or drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We love hearing your feedback. Don't forget to subscribe to the green rush in your favorite podcatcher. One take Shay, one take.